Hello, welcome. My name is Neha Vasakhav and I'm the host of the podcast series The Feminist City. This is offered by Vidhi Center for Legal Policy and in the series we think about cities, our relationships with the city and exclusions in the city. When we wanted to talk about uh, the how the criminal justice system uh, sort of does not really work in the context of women's safety and empowerment, I think we had a slightly different take and approach on it but given a few recent events uh, i think it's worth commenting on them and sort of you know uh, revisiting our episode and taking a completely different approach to our discussion and specifically this is sort of prompted by actually one particular meme if you could call it and i saw that actually put all of this together uh, very recently and this is being recorded a few days after disha ravi was arrested by the delhi police in bangalore and um, it follows close on the heels of in the last 12 to 14 months we have heard of the instance of nodeep kaur we've heard uh, of uh, gulfisha fatima natasha narwal and a few others um, all women in their 20s uh, and who are sort of protesting or uh, being activists about issues that are not strictly quote unquote women's issues and this yeah. is a very new phenomenon and when we think about you know women's uh, place in public spaces and women's role in public spaces this to me is kind of a new challenge that the criminal justice system seems to or at least not the criminal justice system seems to think is a challenge that needs to be addressed yeah i think uh, yeah what you pointed out is true alok uh, there is a construction of the woman or the girl in criminal law that is somebody who needs protection that is somebody who needs a paternalistic concern because i don't think we should forget that our uh, sitting chief justice of india said why are women and old people at the protests right. it's as if yeah so it's it's almost as if that women do not have agency to be political you know beings to be uh, to be equal in the same way the constitution allows everybody else to be which is why i think when we then talk about on one hand you have these recent really alarming policy proposals whether it's in the madhya pradesh or in uttar pradesh where for the purpose of women's safety now proposals such as oh women should go register at the nearest police station or we will use a uh, surveillance to detect uh, if a woman is in crisis as if she cannot herself come or speak up for you know uh, if she is in crisis so on one hand you see this paternalistic protectionism which is the state telling you we know better than you we will protect you and on the other hand you see all of these young women who are speaking up and who don't need protection who are being targeted also by the state so it's it, a, it, it, it is and i think when we talk about the criminal justice yeah. or policing as such um, as protecting women or seeing it as a solution to protecting women uh, we have to i guess necessarily question that we have to say is that even the right approach and also unpack why it would be the completely the wrong approach given how the police is structured and given how you know we have seen the police work in this country and and it's not just about adding a few women constables right? i mean of course the police force should be more gender uh, more gender balanced but we are not just saying that if you add a few more women to the police everything will be solved yeah no absolutely i think um this also brings me to some of the research that i was doing in the you know feminicities project and i would encourage people to just go take a look at the report that we've recently released called making a feminist city a legal and policy perspective because what i engaged there in the report is precisely about this 
very strange notion of how safety is understood in our country and there are a lot of misconceptions around it because usually protection from this unknown outside danger it this perception of risk in public space is so overwhelming that when women themselves feel scared of uh, stepping out there was actually a very poignant quote i recently came across that at night in most large cities all women are agoraphobic which is what Esther D Costa Mayor said right. which is essentially that we're all we're all terrified of the open space when there's nobody at night right but that perception of risk doesn't come out of nowhere it is constructed and built into the city and i think it's really important for us to recognize and understand that secondly the minute we understand this we need to first understand what produces safety and why protectionism is not an answer because in the research that i've done and as many 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 feminist uh, activists researchers geographers have pointed out the most amount of violence women actually experience women and girls actually experience is inside the home right the rates of domestic violence is extremely high and we've actually seen that in covid we've seen that in covid the explosion of you know where women were literally trying to leave their homes because they're experiencing violence at home but when we talk about safety in the city we don't think about the home we think about public space and criminal law also sort of enters the picture because of this stranger other stranger danger right whether it's the construction of the other in the city it's the migrant worker it's the working class man it's the muslim man you know the oh these are the people that we have to protect our women from and who are these women in question usually your young able bodied upper caste hindu women so it's yeah i think these are the popular imaginations i think that pervade imagination or understanding of safety and then this is what criminal law seems to you know um, on the face of it address and i think what you've highlighted has um, sort of uh, it's something that we're going to unpack over the course of the remaining episode and before our viewers wonder who this is this is alok prasanna kumar uh, i am senior resident fellow and vedi and head of vedi karnataka and uh, i i'm just joining uh, sneha on this uh, podcast uh, sneha is of course who's the host and the producer of this podcast uh, to have this conversation uh, a, a very important conversation i believe on women's safety and why criminal law is not and procedure is not the best of the arts yeah no thank you so much alok for joining me today and yeah so in this episode this is what we'll do just engage with why I mean the argument that I'm going to make both which I made in the report as well as I'll make today is why criminal law is not or should not be the sole site for feminist intervention or engagement right. but we need to shift away from criminal law when we are thinking about safety and move on to structural changes in society move on to municipal laws yeah. move on to education move on to social and economic justice you know mechanisms right. in terms of what can law do you know to change the nature of society yeah. as opposed to so, so any time we talk about women's safety and i think especially for most of the listeners of this podcast uh, will be of course young enough to remember uh, the incidents post the nirbhaya case and where the response of the government was instantly to think of criminal law and i think what was also i mean in hindsight at at the moment we were all caught up in the discussion in hindsight i suppose what was also troubling was that many feminist movements in india I and mean, i don't think there is any one feminist movement in india which is why perhaps it's best to use the term several feminist movements in india used said criminal law as the answer right and i think they were they were harking back to their own experiences in the 80s 
for those of you who are interested, the website 52.in has a very long read on the history of India's gender movement. Uh, how the infamous Mathura rape case and the Supreme Court's observations around it sparked this kind of, you know, uh, movement, which sort of saw uh, police and criminal law as a site for sexual assault against women, as a site for compromising women's safety and not so much as enhancing it. But even with that history, somehow, somewhere along the way, you know, that, that river meandered and went in a different direction so that the response after the horrific incident of December 2012, was that let's find a way to strengthen policing. Let's find a way to strengthen criminal law. That penalty to rapists. And it, it, to, to me, it was kind of, uh, or at least, you know, that, that was then the general thing. But in hindsight, and it took us, I suppose, a year or two to realize that maybe this wasn't the right option. Um, and maybe what, what is called carceral feminism, if that's the right uh, phrase I'm using, um, yeah. isn't isn't the kind of approach that favors women's safety, but actively compromises others' safety. Absolutely. I think, uh, no, look, I could not agree more. I do think that it's about time we revisit the way in which we understand and think about which area of the law we need to engage for reform. But as you mentioned, the other another book that I would recommend to everyone is Radha Kumar's A History of Doing, which sort of tracks women's movements in India from, you know, in the recent, she, she sort of collates a really beautiful history of women's movements in India. And I think while I understand and disagree with this approach now, I also recognize that in 1975 or even just in the 70s and 80s, Dowry Prohibition Act didn't exist. Right. Cruelty as a crime didn't exist. Right. So like every year, tens and thousands of women were being burnt alive by their families over dowry and police wouldn't even investigate it because it was a private matter. So I recognize that at a time where police would not even consider these as murders or culpable homicides that they have to investigate, the site for criminal intervention probably would become that, no, this is actually something that you have to investigate. Cruelty from the family has to be a crime. And I think that was important then. But I do realize that even post Nirbhaya's case, one of the criminal law changes that actually still hasn't come is the removal of the exemption of marital, you know, on marital rape. The marital rape exemption in IPC still continues to persist, despite the fact that the JS Verma Committee report recommended that it be removed. So there is still a very strong perception that what happens in the home should remain in the home, which you also see echoed by the government today that what happens in the country should remain in the country. We have a paternalistic state that mimics the patriarchal family. So, which is why I think now, I think what Me Too for me did was that. I think Me Too, which was landmark and historic in so many ways across the world, but in particular, it was a scathing indictment of the failures of due process, right. whether it is criminal law in, in the way that we think about the IPC or others, or it is just due process in sexual harassment law. Yeah. We also cannot forget that we are a country where a former uh, Chief Justice was accused of sexual harassment and the process adopted by the Supreme Court itself was riddled with so many procedural, I mean, I don't know what to call it. It was an injustice in the process that it was, you know, done. So it was women telling the world that this process doesn't work for us. Right. So then the question is, who is it working for and why do we still, you know, make it no, I think what that is, is very uh, important because a friend shared on, on Facebook very recently this image 
uh, of uh, Satya Rani Chadha, who lost her daughter Kanchan to dowry, and she engaged in a sit-in on the steps of the Supreme Court with the papers of the case and a photo of her uh, daughter demanding a change in criminal laws. And this was in the yeah. 80s, if I'm not mistaken, 70s and 80s, if I'm not mistaken. And it, it's, it's very interesting to see the trajectory of the change. I think what you see yeah. is very important. We have to understand the trajectory. We just can't go due process failed. Too bad. But to say there was a time when it was seen that due process, criminal justice was an option and should be used for women's protection. But having seen how it has worked over the years, an entirely different generation of women are now saying it doesn't work. No, this was the wrong approach. Maybe we should try something else. But we can't fault those who asked for it for also asking for it because that was what they saw as they needed. So it's yeah. it's, it's it's very interesting. And, and to understand how views have changed and how people see these issues, we have to see the context also. Because and I think the very important point that you made about the prevention of that, also Section 498, Capital A, right? Uh, it is one of those things which was supposed to uh, yeah. address issues of cruelty, but that has now morphed into something entirely different. Not to say that it doesn't serve an important purpose. It serves a very important purpose. But uh, ironically enough, it has become the site for criminal law reform where judges are laying down guidelines for arrest, judges are laying down rules for anticipatory bail, judges are saying things like bail, not jail, all because it is affecting the most privileged section of society. Right. And and, and con- because Absolutely. the Kumar yeah. case, yeah. which yeah. You know, people even mentioned recently in the context of Disha Rafi, was in the context of a 498 case. So in, in, in a very, like these trajectories go in unexpected ways. But each generation of the women, yeah. I think, sort of learns from the past. And I think one of the things that I personally witnessed in a lot of discussions about Me Too was this generational gap. Uh, one generation of women, women's actors, and again, not not to draw any particular immediate judgment, to say no, guys, due process works. And another generation of uh, the younger generation of women's actors says no, it does not. And both of them are partially true, because when yeah. the earlier generation were agitating for this, they were dealing with a certain context where due where due process was aimed at them directly. And they wanted to turn it around, right? It was, it was, it was actively ignored them, and they wanted to be part of it. But another generation has realized it doesn't work. That, that they they have the benefit of the experience yeah. that the previous generation gave them to learn from. So that that, yeah. that trajectory of how you know criminal law and criminal justice interact with women's rights and spaces, I think we have to understand it's a complicated history, and it's about building on rather than sort of saying that only one approach is right or they're fundamentally opposed to it. Absolutely. I think this is, I mean, thank you for pointing that out. I think it's really, I think it is important for us to keep those contextual realities in mind in the subjectivities that at different points of time, different groups of women were working with. And I mean, to quote Mackinnon, who incidentally was one of the first people to actually create a... Sorry, you mean Catherine Mackinnon because I'm I'm totally ignorant about a lot of... Catherine Mackinnon. Yeah. Yeah, Catherine Mackinnon was incidentally one of the people who sort of provided or developed the legal basis for a claim in sexual harassment. And but she also says that law is a product of a male oriented view of the world, a male dominated state. 
and it systematically victimizes and discriminates against women and she says that's because law treats women the way men see and treat women right. and that there is a male control over female sexuality that is sort of reenacted and that the feminist standpoint then is to uncover and claim the experiences of women as valid because what happens in these systems is an invalidation of women's experiences and women's realities and her scathing like criticism of law is also that objectivity and neutrality are just a cover for male bias in the system right and which i think is really important for us to keep in mind and also i think the feminist movement has to also shift in understanding how feminism itself is developing is that i think when the mathura case happened or when we see manvari devi's case mm. which have all these have been landmark cases that we read about but i think we also need to be keep in mind that uh, mathura was an adivasi girl and manvari devi was from a lower caste uh, background and so we have to understand the dynamics of the relationships between the state and adivasi people right. and upper caste people with lower caste women and women are not a category that can be you know easily just it's not the same experiences right. there are different things that are happening at uh, i think which is why which then also brings me to this question of how do then women from multiple marginalizations hmm. hope to get justice in a system that right. the most privileged women in the society cannot you know even access right so there is a you know i think a differential uh, access to justice that already exists yes and, and and i think this was brought home to all of us very starkly um, in the context of the hatras rape and murder Absolutely. which took yeah. place in up uh, in western up uh, in the district of hatras um and even if you account for the eight year gap between seven and a half eight year gap between the nirbhaya rape case and in delhi and the hatras rape case um you find that the social position of the victim here uh seems to have played a role in how even the state views their case right absolutely uh, a lot of people tend to um sort of distill it to purely electoral politics that you know yeah. um the, the the votes of this community were important or that community were important but i think the real way to understand was uh not just not just the class element of it right because the class element will hide the fact it's will say that well you know your father worked as an airport baggage handler and these were farm landed i mean what is the massive class difference between them um to also uh, understand that uh, the nirbhaya's victim was of belonged to an upper caste and the hatras victim definitely belonged to dalit family and Absolutely. there were local aspects to this which is in the sense that this was a dalit family asserting its land rights and yeah. you know punishing the woman was seen as a way of punishing the family and therefore the caste yeah whereas 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 the gaze if you want of the public in the nirbhaya case was different because the perpetrators generally yeah. belonged to a much lower class and caste than the victim and it was seen as a how dare you touch our women yeah so in, in a way uh, we have to and as you made the valid point just to understand that the state and the criminal justice system does not see all victims and all perpetrators in the same way all in the case of gender right there are some yeah. male perpetrators who tend who will who are like to get away with it as opposed yeah. to others there are yeah. certain female perpetrators uh, sorry certain female victims who are likely to be heard 
right? And yeah. I don't mean in the judicial sense, but I mean in the third yeah. system or by the society at large, then other yeah. uh, victims. So when we, and that's a very valid point that you sort of made, this, this, this comparison between the two highlights how even the criminal justice system makes this look yeah. just no just a, let's not even go back to nirbhaya priyanka reddy case in hyderabad yes. oh yes 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 what happened on the priyanka reddy case yes, that was year, within a year right yeah. no the the encounter it yes. was an encounter killing of the accused yeah within and the police were hailed as heroes yeah. and which is the the stark contrast of Yeah. I mean, I I I won't even call the Priyanka Reddy criminal justice because that is outright murder. But the only yeah. reason why I even reached perhaps for you know by a case is at least the criminal justice system wanted to show that it works. Here, the criminal justice system wasn't even interested in showing that it works. Yeah, it's also, the it's also funny. Yeah, because the criminal justice system tried to show that it worked by completely subverting every principle yes. of criminal justice. Yes, the system is so broken that the people who are in charge of implementing the system yeah. decided that we are not interested in following rules, procedures, norms, extra legal. Like so yeah, absolutely, and and that is what we have to understand uh, when, yeah. when we talk about the police and the criminal justice system, and uh, uh, just just I mean not directly related on this point, but. something that tells us something about the police in india is uh, genie lokanta's new book yeah. how the police uh, plays a role in sort of creating the contingent state that justifies itself to the indian public you know like this is why we exist this is what we do this is our power yeah. on an ongoing basis it's something that offers a very interesting insight and readers should uh, read her new book which the link of which uh, i will give in the description uh, just uh, and as those of regular listeners to this podcast would know all the reading material which we mentioned here we will be providing links to the description but yeah. I, i thought just that's a great point that you brought up yeah like no it. thank you i mean uh, there is other i mean one of the things i actually did want to point out is a lot of times when people talk about the efficacy of criminal law they say oh look at the conviction rates the conviction rates are so low mm-hmm. but when i read pratiksha bakshi's public secrets of law which is a phenomenal book and she does an ethnographic study of rape trials in india I actually realized that maybe the low conviction rate is not a bad thing because the number of cases that actually go to conviction uh she documents the cases where it's consensual sexual relationships between teenagers right. somebody who's 16 17 or 18 where you have all these cases where now with mandatory minimum sentencing and inc- the problem with stringency which which we see after the criminal law after the nirbhaya case and the criminal law amendment act which essentially increased the severity of punishments you have situations where what constitutes a statutory rape because we've raised the age of consent to 18 now uh was actually between consenting adults or consenting teenagers who are very close to adulthood so you have the family which now uses the rape law to control the women or the girls in their families from pursuing consensual relationships which is also what you know shilpa fatke and other feminist geographers point out in their book wiloiter that safety in the city is often very closely tied to the notion of sexual safety not right. actually safety for the well being of the woman right. so when we say sexual safety it means 
you know because women are supposed to be uh, representatives of honor of the family of the community and so sexual violation has a disproportionate value that is attached over say physical violence or domestic violence or just cruelty and emotional or psychological violence so in in this in this regard it's also closely tied with notions of sexual endogamy in our country the caste purity of Uh, like you know associating with undesirable mm. you know people whether it's across religion across caste across i mean now it also sort of reaches you know sexuality another dimensions but now we we have laws in our country we have states that have passed laws in the name of anti conversion that are now being used to target young couples who are yeah young interreligious couples yeah um, and, and, is, and and i think this is something that the judicial system is also grappling with because on yeah. the one hand on the one hand and this is something that by the way very interesting story apparently it's not as new as we imagine uh, yeah. when jinnah married uh, rati uh, jinnah who was parsi yeah. uh, her father filed a case against jinnah accusing him of uh, kidnapping his daughter or, or i think it was a civil case if i'm not mistaken and yeah. rati jinnah had to go to court and say that yeah she married him or well things like this have happened but now they have gone to another level and i think yeah. um, rukmini shrinivasan in her study of the bombay and delhi uh, criminal courts uh, to follow up on the changes made to the criminal law after the nirbhaya incident finds that well actually a lot of these are purely consensual relationships that parents want to find a way to stop because and even if and in a lot of instances even if the parents might be okay or indifferent to it their immediate society jumps on them to say how can you not uphold our caste law how can you not uphold our community's honor your daughter is like this your daughter is there and sort of pressure them into that act but be that as it may it's something that our judicial system is being increasingly called to resolve uh, yeah those of you who have who might follow the website live law may find instances of um, you know and, and website produces these orders where courts repeatedly grant bail or quash proceedings where they find that it's purely consensual they call the uh, uh, accused boy they call the alleged victim woman and she says no i went with them consensually and the matter pretty much ends there and in my experience as an advocate in the delhi court i in this was back in 2010 11 12 almost every day a case like this was there in delhi court in the criminal jurisdiction jurisdiction it didn't make yeah. news because perhaps and as you rightly pointed out it was uh, it was not perhaps seen as a large scale sociological phenomenon but now that maybe there, there are enough inter community inter caste inter religious marriages the reaction to it is so strong that to the point that as you mentioned up has passed that uh, anti conversion law and uttarakhand and madhya pradesh have passed such laws and there of course in court but it tells us something as to how the criminal justice system is being used to in fact limit women's choices to to, to exercise greater control over them and to sort of uh, you know uh, it is all presented in a very different way of course but at the heart of it, as 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 you point out and as pratisha bakhsh this also points out it's even if you take out those anti conversion bills or whatever you want to call it the system itself has been weaponized by communities and by people to control women's bodies absolutely and it's all done in the name of women's protection it's all done in the name of women's safety yes. so on one hand it's like and the reality is 
the country is deeply unsafe for women the country is deeply unsafe like i mean you know i've i've had to go to the police station in the last one year to file a claim for an assault yeah. i've had i've experienced harassment by a cop in indranagar in bangalore these are privileged places you don't expect yeah. these things to happen uh, but they do happen mm-hmm. which is why i think it also comes to me there are two three things that i think i'd like to point out one is that a lot of the feminist organizations like i mean i'm thinking of anveshi in a women's counseling center in koikkode it's one of the most respected women's group and it's been working specifically on violence against women since 1993 which is 28 years they are firmly opposed to criminal litigation because okay. what they do is yeah they use counseling and compromise as a strategy mm-hmm. and they say that in their cases in their records they don't keep track of convictions okay they keep track of settled cases okay and the way the reason they do that is because women come to them and these laws the criminal laws that we've talked about often become a bargaining chip either to get basic maintenance mm-hmm. to get the dowry back from the family mm-hmm. to uh, basically becomes a chip in terms of coming to a compromise with the violent husband or the cruel and you know um, in-laws so we already know that criminal law isn't actually serving the purpose it was designed to serve mm. it's serving a different purpose mm. it's now letting women just you know extricate themselves of violent situations mm. and maybe just with some level of economic or social security mm. which i think is where it's important right now to me feminist intervention then should not be in the case of funding the police or investing in a surveillance infrastructure it should be in investing in communities and empowering women themselves right. making child care you know socialized and usable mm. allowing you know designing the city in a way where women can freely leave their homes if their husbands or families are violent or abusive towards them and this is also true for the trans community in a recent study that was done in india which i will uh, which you can see in the report they found that across 60000 uh, people that they had interviewed majority of violence perpetrated against the transgender community comes from police officials and law enforcement right. so you have a community that is that 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 the greatest perpetrator of violence is the police themselves who are constitutionally charged with protecting people and the other problem when it comes to gender minorities and sexual minorities in particular is that the much like everybody like women and girls family is a site of great violence yeah. the family isn't there to help you the family isn't protecting you so there are no other um civil social safety nets that people can go to which is why we need Uh, a decarceral methods we we cannot like carcerality which is the emphasis on policing on surveillance on yeah. punitive punishment yeah. doesn't work revictimizes and retraumatizes girls and women and gender and sexual minorities who actually go to them yeah. because if you read pratiksha bakshi's book it's a a really stark and painful reading mm. just read what happens when you walk into a court or when you mm. actually subject yourself to that process because one thing is nobody whether it's the police whether it's a judiciary whether it's the lawyers whether it's a medical legal community which is all of these are male dominated number one actually are understand one the nature and uh, of power dynamics when it comes to sexual or any kind of violence against women second they are not trauma informed 
it's almost as if we we don't have a trauma informed response in the criminal justice system we're still arguing for such basic things such as follow procedure do not you know revictimize the victims don't engage in rape culture that we have not yet come to a place where we say that you know any survivor of violence needs to have somebody who is sensitive to the nature and understand trauma and the final thing that then i would like to come to is even the work of feminist scholars on uh, prisons themselves mm. angela davis who is one of the preeminent feminist scholar uh, wrote a landmark essay called our prisons obsolete mm. and in this she talks about both the gendered nature of prisons as well as says that prisons don't solve crime yeah they don't solve crime and we have even in india the cpap project which is the criminal uh, justice and police accountability project that have done research to show how disproportionately prison populations in the country come from lower caste adivasi and muslim communities right. so there is we also see that these kinds of social inequities are replicated so these marginalized populations are then so simply and easily criminalized yeah. and they also link it to a colonial hangover of you know the criminal tribes act yes. where certain communities have been targeted mm-hmm. and those historic uh, biases and stereotypes persist till today and yeah so i think oh, that's a great point and i think one thing we should sort of clarify for listeners is that when anveshi says that um, they prefer settlement we're not talking about like the cap panchayat kind of settlement absolutely right? we are we're not we're not talking about essentially doing it in the name of the community or honor or the caste or whatever it is right we have to keep in mind that ultimately there are two ways to do this one is where you center the feelings of the man the community and his family or one where you center the needs of the woman and not just like yep. the immediate need of but also her long term safety and security and i think we have to understand that uh, when anveshi works towards this it is centering the woman's need in this process and absolutely and 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 one thing that i've realized and you know, as a personal this thing in the context of my interaction as a lawyer and somebody who gets asked for a lot of legal advice in this context uh, it is that we cannot assume that everyone has equal capacity to navigate the criminal justice system i think that's something that which which as you mentioned pratisha bakshi mentions in her um, book and that's in, that's even at the stage once they cross the initial threshold of even being part of the system but yeah. for a lot of women the sight of the system itself is daunting enough you know yeah. if, if for those of you who have read kafka's the trial in that in the famous uh, story within the story where the gatekeeper itself is so terrifying that you know you don't want to walk in it's it's the feeling for a lot of uh, women it's a feeling for a lot of women and this is sometimes not even dependent on their background they just feel that the system itself whether they are underprivileged or not they just feel that the system itself from the outside is so hostile forbidding time consuming whatever you want to call it it's just not worth it so when 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 women say that we would rather settle this it perhaps might make sense to create mechanisms like what anveshi has done which settles disputes in the on the, from the point of view of protecting their interests and their rights and we shouldn't see a settlement as like some unfair outcome 
right? Because because we have to understand that the criminal justice system is not neutral. It's not equal for everyone. It cannot easily be navigated. And 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 to demand that that is the only right way to arrive at an outcome is is perhaps self defeating in in some ways. And and anyway, great point about Angela Davis also. Uh, and 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 on that note, uh, I I sort of like want to flag some very interesting work that is going on in Rajasthan by the PAR uh, uh, NGO, who was run which is run by Smita Chakrabarti, which sort of advocates for open prisons, right? Uh, which 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 sort of says that incarcerating someone, right, uh, should not necessarily mean you put them behind bars. They can they can whatever uh, suffer punishment, but that punishment shouldn't. Get precedence over rehabilitating them into society. So, for those of you interested, you can see the kind of fantastic work that PAR has been doing in setting up open prisons across Rajasthan. It's something that you know other states should really take up because if if the system focuses itself on deterrence, it is going to fail. It is going to fail, and we have seen that it it fails. It's obvious to us. So, this is an option which sort of says that. maybe you and to the other end it, 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 apart from just sort of rehabilitating and protecting the women's rights if we want to bring about long term change in the way men view women in the way communities view women and their rights maybe we have to find a way of also addressing that part of the equation right and yeah. we can't just say oh, whatever men only men we just throw them in prison and solve the problem that's not going to address it um this could be the way that you know it, it might change stuff so part is perhaps something that you know presents us with an alternative idea of not punishment but reformation of a yeah. structured reformation if you want to call it. it no thank you for saying that i think you're absolutely right i think this also requires us to rethink what we mean by justice right there seems to be this one like i don't understand actually i don't know what justice even means anymore because Thank what justice you. means for different people like i think because i which is why we need like there are so many competing notions of justice what justice means you know and and, and how do we then come together as to because one we know that this process is not just right. the women who actually come to this process are not getting the justice they deserve because I mean, we've seen Priya Ramani is one of the women who spoke out yeah. during Me Too in India. Yeah. Two years later, she's fighting a case against, I mean, of criminal defamation. Yes. So we see, like, we see literally every day in the way the system punishes women who do speak up. Yes. So I wonder what is justice for Priya Ramani, right. who one is talking about assault, and and this is against a man. Who twenty other women also spoke up against? Yes. How many assaulters do we meet and harassers do we meet who have who have left such a long line of uh, survivors in their wake? And so it automatically creates a situation. Even Harvey Weinstein, yeah. the number of women who came out and finally the cases that actually, you know, went to trial were one or two counts. Mm-hmm. So we know that this process. doesn't actually offer justice and secondly how many men will they lock up because when me too came out the number of people who were accused of different kinds of sexual harassment and i think it's important to also point out after the criminal law amendment act sexual harassment is a cognizable offense in indian penal code yes. so technically speaking every time there is a, a complaint of sexual harassment the law says that you are actually supposed to notify the police mm-hmm. but we don't do that often because 
you know th- and i don't think i wouldn't advise anyone to do that also yeah. because you know it's not the the, the survivors uh, wishes have to be respected in this matter but this is then also then brings me back to this report that was recently submitted by uh, five uh, legal academics in the uk mm-hmm. uh, to the un special rapporteur who has been collecting um, information on the efficacy or human rights standards across rape laws in different countries they argue in the report that criminal law can never be can just never be the site of uh, you know actually preventing rape or violence against women and they say that what we need are structural changes right. what we need are um an understanding of how to change the stereotypes stigma and the perceptions that haunt the system at 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 multiple levels and you need empowerment of women you need gender the gender power imbalance in day to day life has to be corrected and i do think that law has a role to play there which is what like in our work in 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 this report what we try to do is precisely focus on what actually helps women feel safer what gives them freedom what gives them mobility and autonomy because women's safety is not actually linked to protection as we've seen repeatedly that uh you know the who guards the guards right and the people who are charged are often hurting women themselves mm. is then freedom and autonomy is then to be to be given the full range of um uh freedoms and rights that are constitutionally guaranteed constitutionally guaranteed to every citizen mm. so that you know women can move freely and in the urban context this is why to me municipal laws then become an overwhelming site of feminist intervention and engagement yeah. because if you have a local park and your park is shut during the day because it's run by a resident welfare association or it's been outsourced by the municipal corporation to a i don't know a csr wing of a company that is not a space where you know working women who want to i don't know women who live at home want to go for a walk or take their children can actually access so i would much rather have a focus on who is running your everyday life who is making sure your footpaths are okay or not street lights are working or not yeah. and ultimately you know uh, if you actually have transport to be able to step out yeah. and i think in this report then like which is why the argument away from criminal law is i don't think i have answers in terms of what justice then means yeah. but what i do know as a survivor of violence myself that to me i would much rather figure out a way in which law is strengthening my ability to access opportunity and is creating a city that's more equal because you know if my safety is coming at the cost of the demonization of another group in the city yeah. that's actually not safety so I, that is a very valid point that you make and i think when we sort of you have nicely brought it all together in terms of when we think about women's safety and criminal law uh, we sort of have to understand that it is not something that you pass the law and it something gets safer it's not as if you strengthen the police and women feel safer it's not as if people in of police increase their surveillance women feel safer we have to understand that the criminal justice system itself uh, might be turned against women might focus its uh, might be used to in fact control the movements of women and even if it, neither of these happens if it works quote unquote as perfectly as intended by simply putting men in prison 
you are not addressing the larger question of women's safety. Uh, that Absolutely. when we think about uh, what are the better ways to, and that, that when we sort of say that this is justice, we have to really think many times about what justice means, from whose point of view, for whom, and not just, it's not just about two individuals, but also for la- what is justice in the larger communal, community sense. And yeah. Which is where I think this this episode sort of what has highlights and you've done it very well is to show that we have to turn our focus and our attention on the less obviously uh, women's safety parts of it and the more subtle aspects to how women's safety is determined on a day-to-day basis, which is municipal laws, which is who has control of our public spaces, who is given uh, access to it and who controls access to it. And maybe the real answer for creating a safe city for everyone lies in how we distribute these powers and functions in, and use them in a manner for the benefit of all women in the city rather than trying to use the big stick of criminal justice. Absolutely. Thank you so much for saying that, Alok. I think uh, you actually, I, I just wanted to add one thing because I think it's not all doom and gloom because yeah. people have shown that when you invest in education, when you invest in social security, when you actually introduce comprehensive sex education from an intersectional perspective, that actually reduces sexual violence. Who is teaching our children what consent means? When like the country that is on one hand uh, so sexually repressed is also the country that has, I don't know, like just look at our media. It's, it's also obsessed with it. Yeah. So we have to have, I mean, I think it's important, I think for all of us as a, like, as a society to be, I don't know, grown-ups about how we think about these really important questions because the consequences are really dire. Yeah. And I think, which is why what even people who say, oh, if not prisons, if not criminal law, then what? Yeah. Invest in healthcare, invest in education, invest in psychosocial learning, teach children and everybody how to deal with their emotions. These are all important facets of human development. And I think today the problems that we see are essentially uh, a complete lack of the state giving up any responsibility in are we not just producing good workers, but are we producing good human beings, right? And that that and we have to situate that in a constitutional framework and constitutional morality mm-hmm. as a right to the city is also a right to education, yeah. is a right to freedom, is a right to, you know, uh, which is what I think I would uh, like to conclude the session with. I would I will include all the links of all the people that we've touched upon and so that you can take a look at it. I would particularly recommend reading Sarah Ahmed's work, who's also, I, I didn't get a chance to talk much about, but I will include her essays uh, in the reading list. Uh, thank you so much, Alok, for Happy taking your time. Yeah. And I hope all of our listeners have come away from this episode having learned a lot more about this. Yeah. And do stay tuned in. We'll have more episodes of The Feminist coming. Yes, and I'm uh, actually actually uh, extremely excited to say that the next episode is going to be with Dr. Shilpa Fatke, who is the author of Why Loiter. So do tune in, and um, yeah, thanks a lot for staying with us. <laughs>